Chinese Revolutions, a podcast about how China came to be the way that it is today, looking at modern China through the lens of revolutionary Chinese movements starting back around 1839, working forward to the present day. I am your host, Nathan Bennett. I lived in China for seven years. This podcast is kind of a love letter and farewell letter to that country. We are finally at the end with the Taiping Rebellion. This episode will be about the Siege of Nanjing and how that ended. Next episode, we will go through the epilogue in the book that we are working through for the Taiping Rebellion. I have fast-forwarded to the end because uh, even though the Taiping Rebellion is really pivotal, uh, we were going through blow-by-blow through a lot of details that really weren't that important. And so, given that this is a hobby, there's only so much that I can do before I myself lose interest. It's a it's a worthwhile topic, it's very interesting, but I need to keep moving forward. As always, if you'd like to support the podcast, please rate and review on all platforms, share with your friends, you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast. Please support the podcast. Um, we just re-upped on hosting. Uh, please send me an email at chineserevolutions at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. Last time, uh, I actually didn't release this one on time because I needed to re-record uh, last episode, it was a rambling episode to kind of speed up through to the end of the Taiping Rebellion. Now we're going to zoom in on the Siege of Nanjing, in which Zheng Guofan's forces decisively finish the Taiping armies and their leadership. As we leave the Taiping Rebellion behind, we'll, uh, we'll, as we get past the episodes on the rebellion itself, We'll back up to look at how the war changed China's relationship with foreign powers and how China's government started to integrate with the international system derived from European norms. We'll do two The Episodes Go On As Long As They Have To episodes on the Siege of Nanjing and then the epilogue to the book that we're primarily relying on. And that is Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom, China, the West, and the Epic Story of the Taiping Civil War by Stephen R. Platt. Um, I'm opening with a thought on counterinsurgency. In the book The Army and Vietnam by Andrew Krepinovich, the insight uh, that in guerrilla warfare supply lines, in a sense, flow backwards from the fighters to the political activists at the back of it all really makes sense of how to see battlefield losses and all that kind of thing, that really what you're looking at is whether the people claiming to be replacing the current government are actually credible in that capacity. Like we, we claim we're fighting for the people. Okay, well, based on how the uh, the war is going you know that's it all it all goes into that credibility so in the end of the taiping rebellion we're seeing the de- the the decapitation of the taiping movement the heavenly king is going to die of of natural causes 
uh, before the war ends. Like, they're going to get in there and find his grave rather than the man himself. The remaining elites will be exterminated or so dispersed that there will be nothing to bring together uh, for a remnant to be able to regenerate itself. So then any Taiping armies that may set up some sort of successor state, they won't have the core leadership that could lead them to regenerate themselves. Like, um, okay, so as, as the Qing dynasty will be the victors, uh, they gain or regain legitimacy because they win. But then leaping beyond this revolution... The dynasty itself is replaceable. The Qing replaceable. The Qing replaced the Ming. The Ming replaced the the Yuan, who replaced the Song, who replaced the Tang. Um, everything that comes next will pivot on a couple of questions. So as as the imperial system is ended, and as whatever's coming next is setting itself up, there's two sides. One, what is China and who are the Chinese? The other side is, what is a successful modern Chinese state going to look like? If the Qing had the answer to these questions, we wouldn't be having a podcast called Chinese Revolutions. The Taiping will have awakened educated Han Chinese to these questions. Um, there's going to be increased exchange with the West. The Qing couldn't keep foreigners out. The Qing will fail to modernize, but Han revolutionaries will not fail to, to gather around later successful revolutionary movements. And as I do other reading to pave the way for later episodes, what keeps coming back is the centrality of the Chinese nation. You know, like, so understanding what China is today, that demands that we, that we come to grips with the thing in the center of all of it, China the nation. So when they look at Chinese culture, well, they're going to have to ask, is there something that we're going to have to reform? We'll get into that when we get into the revolutions after the end of the uh, imperial system. Uh, they, you know, so we, we kind of have to do better than study some birth, entry to, ch to adulthood, marriage, child, childbirth, um, death customs. It, it's, uh, we kind of mix art and science to feel the spirit of the nation and get a more academic definition of what we're looking at. Like, so, for example, you have Chinese who live in Malaysia, for example, but then there's you have to really get into academic distinctions uh, as to whether they form a, an integral part of the state, the Chinese state, and the people, as in the people of China though they are chinese like there's where where you'll you'll have solid relationships between the chinese abroad and 
the uh, their hometowns back in China, there's you really have to draw some academic distinctions between um, between the people there in China and the Chinese people who have gone over there that we'll, we'll have to look at all that. Let's now dive into the blow-by-blow uh, -blow, uh, look at the Siege of Nanjing. So we're looking at you know, the 1960, 1860s here. This is roughly contemporaneous with the American Civil War, uh, this end phase of the uh, Taiping Rebellion. It, there's actually going to be one very interesting parallel later. In summer, in, so that summer, 1863, German missionary Wilhelm Lobschied makes his way to Nanjing to talk to Hongren Gan, the Western-educated, experienced in Western ways, Taiping official and cousin of the Heavenly King, uh, who you know came back after a long absence uh, from the Taiping movement. Uh, he found Hongren Gan bitter and defensive, that he's, uh, Hong said something like that if foreigners were enemies, they'd pretty much better watch out because the, the Taiping were going to settle accounts with all their enemies. Um, the missionary hoped that there could be a reset with the Taiping leaders, but he wrote for a, he, he wrote in a, an account for a Hong Kong newspaper that he thought that foreign powers had really messed up whatever opportunity they might have had making a deal with the Taiping. Uh, you see the Heavenly King himself, Hong Xiuquan, shifting uh, his focus toward his own death. He gave up guardianship of the Crown Prince to Hong Rangan. His insanity stirred up um, by the pressure of a collapsing war situation really... Uh, caused him to lean into more apocalyptic visions and just i mean like when you feel your own end is coming the 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 world and the universe for you it is ending and he started granting rewards and honors to top followers that's when you if you look at anything about like signs that somebody's going to commit suicide well, it's when they start giving away prized possessions and they start making unusual uh, comments about what people mean to them. Like it's one thing if somebody has a life transformation and they want to let you know want to start exp uh, expressing gratitude or sorrow or whatever. Okay, that's one thing. But when somebody's really seeing the end coming and they start you know giving away a lot of things that you'd think that somebody would keep. Well, this is kind of like what's happening for Hong Xiuquan. He's he's seeing the end coming. My diagnosis for the Taiping at this point, the guy who laid out the reason why they were fighting, uh, he was kind of disintegrating. There wasn't someone who could really replace him, even though there was a crown prince. Uh, that that crown prince was still. I mean, you, you know, sometimes in history you'll have an exceptionally talented adolescent who can take over if you have like a functioning panel of advisors who are able to guide the 
the young successor of the uh, of the king who died in a surprise death. Um, sometimes you can have the succession question settled, but in this case, Hong Xiuquan, who was the one guy who all of the uh, bickering um, top leaders of the Taiping Rebellion, he was the, the one guy who could settle disputes so everybody could gather around. He's... They, they've, they, they're losing their backbone. They're losing their reason for carrying on. And uh, that's something we're going to see if there's no succession uh, laid out. It, it, it just devolves to factional conflict. So as we step into the next thing, uh, as we step into the next part of this episode, keep in mind just how much China's political leadership fears disorder and breakdown in law and order. They have, even within living memory, experience of extreme hardship. Even the current president of China, Xi Jinping, suffered deprivation because of political chaos. The Cultural Revolution, with Mao Zedong ostensibly at the head of China, it was chaos. It wasn't just somebody in charge. Like, there were actually shooting wars going on between different factions of communists, even. Um, if you ever read Three Wild Swans by Yung Chang, in her in the Chengdu that she lived in, there there were different factions of communists shooting at each other. That even though there was some like even though the Chinese army kinda had something going, it was just it was all based on fanaticism and looking like you're following Mao. Even Mao's top leadership would have to, from time to time, make groveling self-criticisms. So if you... So then, consider that as we look at the disorder that we're about to see. So, okay, the forces of Zheng Guofan, the uh, Qing loyalist... Um, Summer 1863. Around Zheng Guofan, there's famine in the countryside, reports of cannibalism. Like, it's so extreme that even cannibalism is is almost a luxury. In in his diary, he just kind of, as part of re recording facts around him, he noted the relative prices of human flesh in different pieces of territory around where he was working. It's... You know, so that like that's what they don't want to go back to. Um, the The regions surrounding Shanghai were extremely desolate. All the men were away at war, so no one was doing the farming. Armies in need, they scrape up all the available resources they can find. So consider that a ten thousand man army standing by for a month you know, still con consumes the resources demanded by ten thousand men. In industrial societies, one section of society can be so productive that another section of society can be professional soldiers, but China at this time is still agrarian, even where you know, agrarian society is an advancement on hunter-gatherer society. It's still... Like, you have 10,000 people in a 10,000-men unit 
who are not doing other work. They, they might be digging ditches, uh, building a fort, okay, but that's not building a, a granary, that's not building a mill to grind grain, that's not harvesting or planting or taking care of farm animals, they're just eating. And that's, aside from what they take, they're not giving back either. One grim bright spot that Zhongguofan saw, he saw that the desolate areas mean that the Taiping can't recruit, they can't gather supplies, they can't support themselves in movement across these devastated areas. Uh, the, uh, the desolation would also increase the conflict between Taiping forces in need of supplies, and the civilians who might be persuaded or coerced to support them. So, you know, there's you know, here we have one cartload of grain, and either that can feed my family for a long time, or you're just going to take it, and even if you say thank you, it's just gone now. Uh, so... You know, maybe I'm going to put up a fight. Um, civil war, guerrilla warfare, and counterinsurgency are just like that. It's about an essential question of political legitimacy. You know, we're the authorities. No, you aren't. Well, then all you have left is a fight. A healthy political system has the ability to deal with crime and rebellion in ways short of military conflict. You know, there's police... Uh, there's development schemes to give people other things to do. It's not all bread and circuses. It's like I want, like the only reason I have a revolution is that the system just isn't working for me. So I might as well change it all and hope for something better. You know, boosting trade and commerce, encouraging the de the development of civic life. Yeah, I play violin because life is good and. I want to put some beauty in the world, and even though beauty doesn't quite pay the bills or whatever, it, uh, you know, I actually don't play the violin, just in case you're going to write in about that. That's, uh, anyway, um, a diseased political system has to deal with things on, with the military. Police are too corrupt or outgunned to be able to do things without killing people. The government is not able to set norms, therefore it's martial law. It's, it's like, you know, before it's like, okay, get off my lawn or else I'm not going to invite you over for dinner, you know, for, you know, two months. Get off my lawn or I shoot. That, that's, that's the kind of difference here. That when you have police, you can give punishments like imprisonment or fines um, and then, you know, when you, you know, say so if you can't, you know, like, like say a speeding ticket is a sign of a very well-functioning society, as irritating as that is, it's like, okay, the, the police officer writes on a little piece of paper, you have to pay a fine for, you know, this thing, and it's kind of on your honor, you come back and pay it, or else the police will do something about it when they get around to it. Um, but it's, but society's not going to collapse yet. Um, but if 
all law and order breaks down, the only thing you can do is shoot the malefactors. Like, that's it. And so this is where it is with the Taiping Rebellion. And prosecuting the war aggressively and lethally is actually the shorter route back to peace. You know, like, so people are going to die. It might as well be a smaller number than a larger number. And most of the people who are going to die might as well be the bad guys, the rebels. So let's look at the situation inside the city. Uh, the army commanders for the Taiping were begging the Heavenly King to ev evacuate Nanjing. So let's compare this to the long march of the communists. They were surrounded, and they took off on this super long epic march to Yan'an in, in north-central China. They had to run away, but they survived to fight another day, to take over China, and ultimately push out their enemies. A lot of the space inside the walls was cleared out for farmland, for raising cattle, but the, the, the human element is the most critical factor in victory or defeat. When material factors are equal, the human factor will determine it. Even when you have a weaker force, if the smaller force has higher morale, better motivation, they could win over a much greater force, better equipped. Increasing strictness on the part of the besiegers uh, put additional pressure on the, on the people inside Nanjing, in late spring 1864, Zhang Guofan directs his brother to not let any women or children escape. It's uh, partly to increase the starvation factor inside the city, also to ensure the deaths of the rebels' families. They wanted all these people dead. Kill them all. Hongrengan himself uh, was the most competent commander at least politically, left on the Taiping side, that he was, where the Heavenly King was losing his marbles, other more talented commanders and political leaders had died, armies were dissolving or surrendering. Now, it's an interesting quirk of, the, of internal Chinese wars, is that surrendering soldiers may be incorporated into the victorious army. When the Chinese entered the, the Korean War, Soldiers formerly on the nationalist side were using their own radio sets to make contact with the forces that had escaped to Taiwan to let them know what was up. Yeah, we're, we're going north, we don't know where this is going, but you guys might want to let the Americans know kind of thing. Before, for the Taiping, it had been easy to rake in recruits. Now the, the Taiping armies, uh, the soldiers already in the army, didn't want to be on the inside of a siege. Hongrengan had gone outside of Nanjing to see what he could do for the overall strategic situation, but he couldn't get very far. And the the main situation facing him is that unless you have an extremely disciplined force over uh, included in part of an overall winning situation, soldiers don't really like to lose 100%. Like, they don't like to fight to the last man. You'll see forces fight until they lose like 30% or something and call it good. Uh, you like There's a certain portion that a force will lose and then they pretty much retreat or 
uh, surrender or you know, people don't like to lose. You know, okay, you, you fight this much and then you figure, ah, I guess I can live with what's coming somehow or other. At least I'm not dead. Zhang Guofan's forces continued to increase because you know, everyone loves a winner, and all the other forces were continually victorious against Taiping forces away from Nanjing, and he, and he continued to approach the city with his siege and with his uh, putting up a siege wall around the city wall. You know, so in February 1864, Zhang Guofan's Forces captured the last critical Taiping forces, fortresses outside of Nanjing, and then in March 1864, the last major cities in eastern China held by the Taiping had fallen to Qing loyalist forces. Outside the city, the devastation of the surrounding countryside, even where it kept the Taiping movement more broadly uh, from being able to move around and live off the countryside, it also increased the pressure on the um, on the besiegers, uh, and you know, and so Taiping forces, who, as stated, were clearing out parts of the inside of Nanjing to grow crops, they were starting to reap some of those crops, but then also for Zhongguofan. Uh, Bay, uh, the the administration in Beijing was starting to turn up the heat, urging that Nanjing be taken ASAP. So remember that the the people far from the front lines will, you know, that they'll, you know, that they'll, you know, snap their fingers, you know, okay, come on, you know, carry on, f finish this up now. So there's there's kind of a balance between you need to know what it's like on the front line and on the on the other side is you don't fight war like you do a sport you don't fight it so that you continue to have more fights you don't you know it's not like a game you continue to play in the hope that there will be more games so Zhang Guofan's brother Zhang Guoquan wanted to have the credit for taking Nanjing, so he was resisting suggestions that other forces with other commanders to share the credit um, be brought in as reinforcements. Uh, as war closes, uh, the enemy shifts, so instead of the enemy being the enemy, you contend with rivals, like so if you are in danger of losing credit for like a successful victory, then maybe one of your pre-war rivals is going to get the credit for saving the day, and then you lose out. Um, but also, as 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 you contend with rivals toward the end of a war, it's then people actually can start, like, forces can start turning on each other, and so then a war can be lost, even as the war is in the process of being won. Also, new wars erupt in the ashes of an old war. If you ever read the uh, Chinese classic novel Romance of the Three Kingdoms, well, it starts out with the Yellow Turban Rebellion, but after that, then you have pretenders to the imperial throne stepping forward to put themselves up, and then all the wars follow that, 
protecting the Han dynasty or replacing the Han dynasty. Zheng um, Guofan, uh, the smarter political operator, admonished his brother to accept help from other forces approaching Nanjing. Uh, he knew court politics behind the front lines. You know, commanders could be accused of trying to usurp the throne. It's sometimes where dynastic change came from, uh, where you'd, you'd have the leader of a powerful force who then decided to come back to the capital and decide he thought it was nice here and decided to stay. Uh, the commander of the other reinforcements was actually one of Zhang Guofan's protégés, and so he made an excuse to let the Zhang family keep the keep credit for the victory. And he also pulled the Zhang family he also pulled for the Zhang family at court to keep them out of trouble. Like so he he wasn't somebody who was coming in to snatch the credit, but he and so he was further loyal to Zhang Guofan. So it was a very fortunate situation for the Zhang family and for the Qing dynasty in general. Um, the the besieging forces completely surrounded the city. They walled in the defenders through contravallation, putting up a wall in opposition to the city wall, so that keeps any enemy for any that keeps besieged forces from being able to sally out and make a raid and try to break the siege. Um, they went to the extent of building a three mile road through a bog to bring up supplies, and that's 4.83 kilometers. The attackers didn't have artillery sufficient to blast the walls open, so they resorted to mining. That's digging under the walls to either burn the supports to collapse the ground under the enemy walls, or just pack it with gunpowder and blow it sky high. Sometimes they went as deep as 90 feet or 27.43 meters under the earth with their tunnels. And keep in mind, this is in the presence of the enemy, that mining is dangerous, uh, claustrophobic anyway, but the enemy is going to do countermining so they're actively listening for mining activity, and they're digging their own tunnels to pump in sewage or blast poisonous gas in to kill the enemy miners. Uh, uh, one other problem is that like, grass could turn brown above the tunnels. I don't know how did down how far down you have to dig for grass to not turn brown, but that that was an issue. Oh my goodness! There's a line running from their side to our wall. Maybe we should see what's going on. Ventilation holes could attract attention. In uh, the escape story from World War Two, The Great Escape, uh, they, they, the prisoners actually built a hand pump ventilation system so that they could keep getting fresh air down to the people who were digging but then they didn't have to keep opening holes in the top uh, up uh, in the ground that German sentries might have seen. So, and the, the dirt being taken out could pile up above the screens 
put up to hide the digging efforts. So all these things were were, were uh, make they were so they had to deal with all these things. June eighteen sixty four, they had thirty different attempted sites to tunnel under the walls. Four thousand dead miners, no results so far. Then in July eighteen sixty four, Zunguofan's forces captured the last Taiping fortress outside the city. This gave them a good position from which to bombard Nanjing with their artillery, and a siege tunnel in the same place made its way under the city gate on that side. And the defenders knew it was there, but Zhongguofan's military uh, artillery suppressed their ability to do anything about it. On July 15, the Taiping commander tried to rush out and capture the tunnel entrances, but he was beaten back by superior enemy forces. At noon on July 19, they they detonated 20 tons of gunpowder under 50-foot-thick walls 15 meters wide, and they opened a 200-feet-wide, 61-meter-wide gap in the wall. The This explosion was so big, the rubble killed the leading elements of a 400-man unit that was supposed to lead the assault. And keep in mind, this is before the discovery of industrial nitrogen fixation in 1913 that would make explosives and gunpowder much easier to manufacture in much larger quantities. And... This is not a Western industrial economy either, in which advanced artillery and industrial production of gunpowder and explosives are more common, where North American and European trading empires could bring in resources from around the globe. China wasn't, like, they, they had access to some of those trading networks, but it wasn't quite the same as being in charge of those networks. Um, and uh, so this is really a prodigious accomplishment on the side of Zhongguofan's forces. Uh, interestingly, the Battle of the Crater in the American Civil War happened 11 days later in Northern Virginia uh, on July 30, 1864, the Chinese counterpart was much larger and was actually successful, whereas the attempt by Union forces ultimately failed. Where it's just kind of one part of the story, but they didn't follow up with a successful assault. They didn't. Uh, they 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 had a unit trained to to go in and fight in the conditions that they figured would would emerge, but due to political reasons, that unit that was trained, it it was a bunch of black soldiers, but they were pulled out because of, I I don't know, some sort of racism or something. They got pulled out, and a bunch of untrained white soldiers were sent in. The Union lost that particular thing, whereas the the Chinese, they, they... they did a bigger boom, and they actually followed through on their plan. Uh, 
so it's just an interesting historical parallel. Uh, so in in a continental rebellion, it, the same tactic being used in the same month, um, Qing forces the the Hunan army under Zheng Guofan they stormed Nanjing. the The heavenly king uh, Hong Xiuquan had died six weeks before the walls were finally breached. Soldiers swept forward with special instructions to capture the Taiping crown prince, and uh, the uh, the last Taiping military commander uh, was rushing out of the city with the Taiping crown prince. After three days on the run, that commander was captured, having fallen behind in, in his attempt to save the crown prince, not long later, the the Taiping Crown Prince was captured. Uh, the 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 discipline of the Hunan army completely fell apart. Looting, massacre, rape, slaughter of the old and young who couldn't be forced to carry loot. Many civilians tortured. Um, Many civilians were tortured to get them to give up the location of valuables. Even commanding officers got in on it. Women disappeared to unknown fates. You know what happened? Uh, think of what happened to women in areas conquered by ISIS, like like taken as slaves, uh, ta- you, know, you know, captured and uh, married off to jihadists. Um, so for the uh, the women who were on the inside of Taiping occupied Nanjing, you know, were were they raped then murdered? Were they you know carried off as wives? Well, I'll I'll read uh, a um I'll I'll read a selection from Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom about the story of. What happened to one woman? Little is known of what happened to the thousands of young women who were taken from Nanjing, but one at least managed to leave a record of what happened to her after the city fell. Her name was Huang Shuhua, and she was sixteen years old. The soldiers came, she said, and they killed my two bro- older brothers in the courtyard. Then they went searching through the rooms of the house. One of the strong ones captured me and carried me out. My little brother tugged on his clothing. My mother threw herself down before him, weeping. He shouted angrily, All rebel followers will be killed. No pardons. Those are my ge- are the general's orders. Then he murdered my mother and my little brother. My eldest brother's wife came out, and he killed her too. Then he dragged me away, so I don't know what became of my other elder brother's wife. I was grief-stricken, sobbing, sobbing and cursing at him, begging him to kill me quickly. But he only laughed at me. You I love, he said. You I will not kill. The soldier tied her up and put her on a boat to take her back home with him to Hunan. This was... He was from Zheng Guofan's home county of Xiangxiang, the very place where Zheng's army, indeed his whole campaign to bring order back to the empire, had originated. And now, after all those years, the forces Zheng Guofan had conjured were finally coming home with their legacy. At the soldier's village, the young woman would face the horror of spending the rest of her life as the wife of the man who had murdered her entire family. She wrote down her story on two slips of paper, 
one evening while they were still traveling, as they stopped at an inn for the night. One slip of paper she hid on her body, the other she pasted to the wall of the inn. Then she somehow managed the wherewithal to kill him before she hanged herself. That's, that's just one story. That's just one episode in this, this whole thing. It was extremely brutal. Uh, you know, and so I just, I mean, just, just kind of sit with that for a moment. Like, that, like that's, you know, where you, you could understand for an army that's been fighting such a brutal conflict for years that when they finally have the catharsis of victory, they might not be humane and merciful. Yet, it's still not, even where you understand it, it's not something you'd like to see. I, I can't imagine, you know, like, I, I can't imagine what that woman anticipated. I, I mean, like, it, like one thing I have to give her props for. It's like, yeah, okay, you, 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 you avenged your family. Yeah, you, you know, you, you, you avenged yourself. I, I, that's, that's, but I, I mean, just, just, just like the, the, the utter devastation. I, yeah, I mean, like it's one thing. It, it just, just the utter personal. Damage, uh, seeing all those people killed in front of you, and, and just over succeeding years. If you continue to live, you'd have to, you you know every every just all the trauma, all the personal anger angles. So, that I hope that gives you some idea of the brutality of the sack of Nanjing there. Um, Zhang Guofan entered the story on July 28. Uh, he toured the city, received a, a de detailed account of the final days of the siege, of the sack and pillage, and the aftermath. There were very thorough celebrations, and again, this is the culmination of years of bitter struggle. Banquets, plays and operas, storytelling, recounting the battles. Um, Zhang Guofan took personal command of the interrogation of Li Xiu-Cheng, the last remaining Taiping military commander. He spent many hours over several nights editing the, the confession of Li Xiu-Cheng to make the Hunan army's behavior sound better, to make his, to make his family's actions seem more meritorious. He ordered the execution of Li Xiu-Cheng against orders from Beijing to bring him back alive. In, uh, just incidentally, another detail here, the Taiping crown prince, though in his teens, was sentenced to die by slow slicing, you know, death by a thousand cuts. Hong Rangan himself died in a night attack by imperial forces as he tried to escape the sack of Nanjing. Uh, so uh, here at the end, even though Zhang Guofan himself is, is a fairly principled person, the, the politics never stops. The politics never quits. That he took every effort to make sure that his armies 
actions seemed the best that they could be. Uh, he had the captured enemy executed so that he wasn't going to be able to sing a different song than the uh, what what Zongguofan had edited. And then, and then contrast this to the end of the American Civil War, where there was they tried to make you know the 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 rebel side was punished uh, with a lot of devastation, with a lot of loss of property. I mean, but there wasn't the same level of extermination of the enemy leadership that there were two very different ends to to the to a similar sort of conflict um, i it's you know i i i don't it it's beyond the scope i, I mean we we'll see similar levels of devastation as we get on with other revolutions here so keep that in mind that like when chinese authorities want to avoid disorder they they have the historical receipts for why disorder is not something to be tolerated but we'll deal with the full picture of that as we get on um, two names we'll look at more closely as we uh, dispose of the Taiping Rebellion as such are Zhang Guofan, our hero, Li Hongzhang. He's in our story today, but he's not named just to kind of simplify the narrative. Uh, we'll spend the next episode going over the epilogue from Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom because it bears upon our main narrative, revolutionary movements that made China what it is today. Um, some following episodes will extract other material from Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom as it bears upon the era following the 1860s and the ongoing evolution of China's relationship with foreign powers. Um, that is the end of our episode on the Siege of Nanjing. If you'd like to support the podcast, please rate and review on all platforms. Uh, share with your friends. Please go to buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast. Uh, we, again, we recently redid the hosting and uh, please send me an email, ChineseRevolutions at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and again, I am your host, Nathan Bennett.